Welcome to the Global Futures Podcast with me, Joelle Sandu. Our guest today has directed a team of public lawyers handling human rights issues. She has focused her efforts on protecting and promoting the rights of children, women, workers, members of the LGBT community, and indigenous people. She's also passionate about health and education issues. Maria Laura Canino is the Brazil Director in the America's Division of Human Rights at the Human Rights Watch. She has spent several years building the capacity of human rights NGOs in Sao Paulo, focusing on issues ranging from poverty reduction to corporate social responsibility. In this episode, my colleague Torsten Benner talks to Maria about the state of human rights in Brazil and how the current Brazilian government, under President Jair Bolsonaro, can affect Brazil's human rights policies. Welcome, Maria, to our Global Futures podcast. It's great to have you on this this program to discuss the state of human rights uh, in Brazil and the focus areas of your work with uh, Human Rights Watch. Uh, if you had to say what your top three issues that you focus on and that you're concerned about are, what would you say on that? Well, I've been with Human Rights Watch in Brazil for six years now. And unfortunately, year after year, I have to say that the core human rights concern of Human Rights Watch in Brazil is related to public security. Human rights violations are related to the poor policing practices uh, that uh, have remained in Brazil for many, many years, uh, the lack of impunity for police abuses, uh, the problem which reflects in our prison system because of the ineffective investigations in relation to violent crimes. And, and I would say also, so I, I point uh, public security issues, police violence, prison, prison overcrowding, and inhumane conditions. But also recently we have dedicated some time to work on uh, violence against women. So we consider also that domestic violence in Brazil leading to homicide of women is also widespread and there is a lack of effective uh, measures to deal with this problem. Thank you. I think we can discuss each of these challenges in turn. Let's start with uh, police violence and impunity uh, in, in, in this area. What do you think are the main driving factors uh, for this? Yeah, as I, I was saying, like uh, Brazil police is very violent. Like, of course, they face a very violent country like we had in 2017 more than 60,000 homicides like against people in general including police officers so uh, this is a country where police of course has a hard time to to deal with this uh, insecurity uh, but also police acts excessively like that's what we have been reporting over and over again that um, of course there are many insta instances or circumstances that police kill people to protect themselves or to protect the society as a whole but we have documented many many cases of extrajudicial uh, killings so cases where police kill without a confrontation and also apply measures to uh, deviate like and not uh, be prosecuted by it by it, such as putting like weapons in the hands of people. And what uh, that leads is a, uh, an environment that communities, especially vulnerable communi communities where these police work, lose trust. I think this is the core underlining issue. Like they don't have any trust in the police when they act 
in their way. So they don't contribute with the investigations. And, they're, and also suspects, when they know that they might be executed, they won't surrender themselves peacefully. So it's a cycle of violence that undermines public security and undermines even the job of those good police cops that want to do uh, the job in accordance with the law. So, And the problem of impunity like just causes also the cycle that you don't see uh, that people who act in that way are or are prosecuted or have been taken into account. And this is uh, an structural cause, impunity, that comes back even uh, to the dictatorship uh, period in Brazil. So I think it's a, a, it's a cycle of violence fed by police violence and impunity. And the lack of trust that you said, like on the, on the part of the suspects and the part of the, the communities, but probably also on the part of the broader public uh, that has lost trust uh, in the system coping with, with this wave of violence. And to, to restore trust on all these parts, what do you think some key measures could be that you would propose and you know, how can one turn the tide on this i think brazil and brazilians have to recognize um the problem of violent crimes like it's not we are a human rights organization that recognizes that violent crimes have to be investigated have to be prosecuted and of course the responsibles have to go to jail and and have to to pay and be accountable for it and but there are studies that point out that in brazil for every 10 homicides, only two have prosecution or are prosecuted by investigations than by the civil police or the Ministerio Público, the Office of the Public Prose Prosecutor. So you have to agree that only if we really invest in policies that uh, give, provide police with technical capacity to investigate better and to lead these cases to the Ministerio Público and other key elements of this, the criminal justice system, Uh, is the only way that you can really fight violent crimes. Like you have a prison system full of people, a lot of first offenders, a lot of people prosecuted for non-violent crimes when you see like this rate of prosecution in relation to homicide. So who are we actually prosecuting in Brazil? Like who are we feeding this uh, horrible, deplorable uh, prisons in Brazil? Is it with the violent offenders? Like should we have like double the efforts to, to make this rate change and to really make society uh, trust? not only the military police, but also the civil police who has a big role to play. In Brazil, like a lot of people forget that security, there are a lot of authorities in charge of security, like not only us, like the community that, to cooperate, but also civil police, the office of, of public prosecutor, judge. We tend to accuse military police who is often not paid enough, not trained enough, not... Uh, prepared enough to deal with these horrible rates of violent in, violence in Brazil. You mentioned prisons and the conditions in, in prisons. Brazil has, in world terms, uh, the fourth largest prison population. You talked about, uh, or you hinted at, uh, fairly horrific conditions uh, in, in prisons. What are the underlying structural issues that To leave the prison system in such uh, dis disrepair and uh, what do you think 
could turn this around? Mm -hmm. Maybe I can answer by giving at least one example yeah. of something that we saw Please. in one of the most horrible prisons, the most overcrowded prison in Brazil, which is in the state of Pernambuco. Entering in a prison in Brazil, especially this one, is like entering into like a medieval area, era. Uh, first of all, we had a prisoner himself opening the prison for us. So police or the state was in charge of the overall um, outside area, but the prison itself was controlled by the prisoners. He opened the cell for us. And what we saw there were cells that with the capacity for 10 prisoners having 60, 60 prisoners in a cell for, for 10. So this actually gives you an idea of what conditions, like we have prisons controlled by the gangs, the state has completely gave up on its ability and authority in, in the prisons, and this has had reflections outside prison as well. So the example, like in this prison specifically, we met a prisoner who had already accomplished, um, I don't, how do you say that, like he had already met his um, sentence 10 years before we met him. Like, so he was... 10 years in prison after he had already accomplished his sentence. He was already an old man. And one of the structural problems is that a lot of people who are there don't have the legal assistance provided by the state for every person who has no means to, of economic means to, to pay a private lawyer. So this is a case. There are a lot of people in the same situation in prison. So this is overcrowding that leads to the fact that the state has no control and the prison is uh, controlled by the gangs themselves. In this prison specifically, even uh, the punishment for prisoners who didn't abide by the rules was given by prisoners themselves. And they use extortion and other means to control the prison. So what is that, right? Like, where is the state? Where is the state? Like, and, and what are we... We are actually considering prisons to be the best recruitment uh, place for new criminals, right? Because when the state is not there to protect those who should be protected, actually this is always state-owned institutions, uh, somebody else will provide. So we have this example that shows like how the lack of control will lead to a place where, where the state's not present and where prisoners convicted one by, by sometimes not a lot very serious uh, crimes are actually controlling the means and and the the destiny of others so this is an overcrowded system with a lot of uh, people convicted or not for nonviolent crimes so and one of the 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 structural problems is also that usually there's no separation of convicted ones and pre-trials trial ones so one of the instruments to fight that in our opinion is have giving prisoners like first offenders or flag people putting prison in flagrant for of a hearing with judges before like in 24 hours of the the prison like that doesn't happen in Brazil which means that sometimes prisoners will see a judge 6 months 1 year after he was arrested without even knowing what is the charge so providing a hearing with a, ju a judge uh, right immediately after the flagrant detention is a way to select select who are those who need to be there and those who don't need to be there and will face prosecution but uh, facing like an alternative type of um, 
of measure. To what degree do you think there's sufficient public awareness of and outrage at these conditions in, in prisons? Uh, is that uh, a sentiment in this analysis and the examples that you've given? Does the majority of Brazilians know and care care about this? Or the, how does the elite think think about this? Uh, the degree to, to which it, it affects uh, the elite, how does that play out? Yeah, this is tricky because... Uh, Usually what you see around is a lot of people still supporting measures that will not enhance the situation, but also but like making it even worse. Such as, for instance, when 80% of the people believe that you lowering the age of criminal responsibility from 18 to 16, uh, that could make the, the 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 situation better like that's what they believe i think they are just people are so scared people are so pressured by a lot of insecurity that they just believe in easy solutions for really complex problems so whenever we are able to identify and humanize the situation and identify uh, things like that i think people believe that this is unacceptable unacceptable like someone who has already accomplished the sentence to be there among these other horrible like uh, cases of violent uh, suspects uh, then they believe that maybe this is not um, right and also the fact that uh, the pr problems in prisons very recently in Brazil have actually left only uh, the um, the prison itself to be seen in the streets. Like in recently, like this month, we had lots of uh, acts of violence uh, ordered uh, within the prison uh, outside in the state of Ceará. And prison, people get scared. And then in those circumstances, they realize that something is wrong. Like maybe we should deal with this problem better. And sometimes dealing with regaining control so one of the measures that we always insist is the state needs to regain control over the prisons and then for that not uh, allow that this is a recruit recruitment ground so i think like the uh, uh, we need the debate we need the debate and we need to continue pressuring and showing that easy solutions will not solve a historical and structural problem that we have in brazil And that and, and that uh, is valid for police abuses, and it's also the same thing with the prisons. And you you said that people are, citizens are susceptible to easy solutions when they feel very insecure, as is the case also in in Brazil, and that organizations such as yours, Human Rights Watch, they want to kind of convey easy solutions don't work. You need to stand up for human rights and. Uh, the right approach may be complex and it may take a while to to bear fruit. Uh, what do you think are the most effective ways to kind of win public support for this? Uh, and how do you go about this, especially in an environment uh, that in this country, but in many other countries also, is increasingly politicized and charged against NGOs like Human Rights Watch that are being seen as elite institu organizations funded from abroad and uh, that uh, you know, care about luxury issues but don't really care about real people and are ideologically biased and, and so on. How do you navigate uh, this environment? Yeah, this is very difficult, especially in this exact moment in Brazil, right? Like where we had a very politicized, uh, polarized 
elections and, and this kind of narratives against human rights got a lot of traction. Um, it's tricky, but the way we try to address it is through very rigid research. And, and as I said, trying the best we can to humanize the situation, like, and humanize this, uh, and give these examples that people can relate to and find themselves thinking that they can be in the same situation. Like, let's say the migration and refugees uh, crisis in Venezuela, for instance. Like, we have been able to identify several cases of Brazilians who actually join efforts to support these people, help them to get health access, to get instead of highlighting those xenophobic approaches or, or sometimes the, the resistance from authorities to recognize this is a, a moral and international obligation. So uh, we tried to do that, not giving space for criticism uh, by questioning our work, so giving a ver being very rigid, and I think Human Rights Watch has been able to do that over like 40 years of work, uh, gaining uh, legitimacy and and also influencing the best we can the media, like to be able to be accurate to the findings that we have in every single report. For instance, in relation to public security, we've recently published a report talking about freedom of expression of police, policemen, and that gave us, a lot of people came well, but don't you, uh, protect human rights of criminals? Why are you talking about the rights of police? We said because the police are the best allies we have in relation to pressing for a better reform. But if they are not able to be part of the debate because they they face unproportional uh, punishment by speaking, then we never have this ally on, on the table with us. So we've been pushing for better conditions. We've been pushing for the police to be actually actively participating on the b debate about police reform and and by analyzing that they feel they fear doing that because they can be in prison for that uh, we were able to attract a lot of attention and a lot of allies within the corporation so we find we have to be strategic and we've been trying to be strategic in the migration um, issue, in public security, and even prison, which is hard. Like it's hard because it's it's understandable that societies fears, but they fear and they should. Like uh, as a Brazilian citizen, a human rights activist, but a Brazilian citizen, I can relate to those concerns. But I have to find ways, strategic ways, to to be able to to fight these easy solutions. You mentioned a very polarized and polarizing election that has brought Brazil a new president, President Bolsonaro, who has just taken the oath uh, of office during the campaign. He railed against human rights as an ideology. He also made a point of abolishing the human rights uh, ministry. It's early in the term, but what do you think different possible effects of his presidency, both positive and negative, on the state of human rights uh, in Brazil could be? What should we expect or what can we expect? Well, it, it is early to evaluate policies, real policies. We, I don't want to evaluate um, him as a candidate, as a presidential election, and a lot of really, really concerning uh, anti-human rights uh, promises that he has made. But I can say that the year has started with at least two measures that are very concerning for human rights. So I can speak about these two 
specific measure that he was already able to release, and it's it's concerning for human rights um, standards in Brazil. One is the um, the executive order that he released in the first day of his um, presidency, talking about monitoring and supervising the work of NGOs and international organizations. That's very concerning. Like we had an opportunity to talk to them about it because we were hoping that they were referring to organizations that receive public funding because we, of course, we are 100% forward transparency. But what we got is the, uncla it's unclear what they want and it seems that they are really, really intending to supervise organizations that don't receive public funding, which represents a complete lack of understanding of the importance of civil so independent civil society in a democratic society. So we are very concerned with that. Can, you, can you say, since we're at this, and this is a very popular measure by all sorts of authoritarian-leaning governments, we've seen that in Hungary uh, and in, in, in other, other places, what Do they under what does the government mean by supervision? Uh, which you, you hinted at could be financial supervision, but does it go beyond? Uh, what's what's the, what's the idea? It's very unclear. As you said, it's the formula that has been used by other authoritarian authoritarian <laughs> populist governor governments around the world, and it can be a lot of things. We don't know what this government will do uh, at all. It can be. Uh, applying bureaucratic rules for us to even receive international funds. And that's concerning because a lot of no, uh, human rights organizations are funded by non-human rights grant grants around the world. So it could be by yeah, prohibiting some kind of activities. Uh, the, the, the term that this, this government used to explain is that even uh, organizations that don't receive public funds need to prove technical capacity to perform something. And then they give example of, uh, uh, for instance, a organization that takes care of indigenous health. If they have doctors, these doctors need to show that they are able to perform or they're professionally registered. There are many, many other ways to do that. Like it's not, like it, it concerns me that it, the government will go there and say like, oh, this doctor doesn't have legal because it's not, um, it went didn't go to this university. Or th that's not the role the government has has to play like of course if there is misuse uh, then we have the corporation like the medical association to go there and to to find but independent organization civil society like the the core is independence and and this and being free from interference state interference so it's unclear i don't know how they intend to go on it But it's concerning that they're thinking of it and that the mandate is not clear, not even for them yet. Uh, and so and it, it seems that very yeah. tricky. I mean, you mentioned an operational NGO, that a service providing NGO. There, one can at least think of potentially reasonable standards uh, for for this in terms of technical capacity. Think of you yourself as an advocacy. NGO, uh, yeah, who is going to tell in very treacherous uh, terrain? Yeah, who is going to tell if I am, am I'm capable technically to perform the work that I do? So it's unclear and it's very concerned. This is one of the measures that we are worried. And the second one is the flexibilization of arms control in Brazil. Like there is also a decree that was issued very recently that makes it easier for people to access. Uh, weapons. 
there is no, it wasn't followed by any credible research that says that more weapons circulating in society means more security. Uh, so this is very concerning for us, especially when we work with an issue, as I said, that's widespread, which is domestic violence. If you understand the context of domestic violence, there's no way you will believe that the woman will be more uh, secure if she has a weapon. That's not the cycle. And, and, and this is very, very concerning because the studies on the contrary, showed that at least in the US, more weapons in circulation has meant less security for women at home. So this is an issue, like these are two measures that were already there. Uh, there is one ministry for human rights, family, and um, uh, there are three names. They changed the name from ministry for human rights for family and human rights. And, and it's headed by this minister who we talked to and, and there were a lot there was a lot of t criticism on the fact that she was a religious leader before and also made several statements and also action that could put her in a really bad situation of someone who doesn't really understand how human rights work but uh, the, her signs until now was that she wasn't gonna shut down for instance the division that takes care of lgbt issues for instance so we will see and we will of course, hold them accountable for all this and, and there are promises that there will be no setbacks on these issues regarding to women, LGBT especially. But you can be, someone could be naive, but we are not naive. We are actually going to look and, and monitor and of course, uh, there is not, no reason for not saying anything and criticize if we believe that measures such as the ones that I mentioned will really, really undermine human rights uh, respect in Brazil. Thank you very much, uh, Maria, for sharing your insights and uh, good luck for the important uh, work you're doing. Thanks Thank so you. much. It's a honor. This episode of the Global Futures Podcast was presented by Torsten Benner and produced by Joel Sandu and Sonia Sugrobova from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest was Maria Laura Caninho. To find a host of GGF products, including scenario reports, opinion pieces, interviews, and other podcasts, visit ggfutures.net forward slash analysis.